Hey Magic Lantern listeners, this is a special year-end episode in which we will be profiling a number of films. We thought it might be misrepresentative to do an opening scene and focus inordinately on just one of them. Erica petitioned to do a medley of songs from On the Town. The Rocks is up at the Battery Town. Petitioned hard. New York, New York. But in lieu of that, the Magic Lantern players just want to say thanks for listening. We have a lot of fun doing this show, and it's gratifying to know that you're out there. We appreciate your attention and energy, and look forward to doing a lot of great shows for you in 2016. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Coral Lane. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will usually be devoted to one film that we alternately select, but this episode is a little different. Welcome to Ants in Your Pants of 2015. What this episode is going to be for us is sort of a year-end retrospective, and since our show is all about encouraging discovery... This episode is going to be about our favorite film finds of 2015, rather than the typical countdown of new releases from the past year. These are all films that we saw for the first time this year. These might have been films that we had waited for a long time to see, eagerly anticipating. These could have been films that we had never heard of and were delighted to be introduced to. And we chose 10 each. I did not put mine in any sort of a top 10 order. I know you didn't either. The only order mine are in, they're actually in the order that I saw them throughout the year. And I specifically could not narrow mine down into a top 10 list, even if I wanted to, because (laughs) you know I have problems with things like that. I'd probably have stress dreams if you had forced me to do that. Now, I've thought a lot about the show since we started doing this back in August, thinking mainly about who is the show for who are we trying to reach Mm. and what are we trying to encourage them to do basically cinephiles for sure yes people who know a fair amount about film and kind of the more obscure corners of that will probably enjoy the show people looking for new favorites but we also want it to be for fledgling cinephiles too we want it to be for people who may only at this point really know about what's in the multiplex and are looking for something a little different. We want it to be for everyone, essentially, is the point. We hope that everyone hears something on the show that makes you think, hmm, that's interesting. I wouldn't usually watch that necessarily, but I would like to take a chance on that. And hopefully we've got 10 new possibilities from the both of us that might get people excited about some places to go and some titles to track down. Right. So, that being said... Where do you want to start? Why don't you tell me about your first choice? Okay. I also loosely went in order of when we watched these. Okay. And the first title I have, I know, is also on your list, uh, Cheater. And it is (laughs) Working Girls from 1931, directed by Dorothy Arzner, and starring Judith Wood, Dorothy Hall, Charles Betty Rogers, and Paul Lucas, who is always one of my favorites. Yeah, this one I loved It was part of a Dorothy Arzner retrospective that Austin Film Society put on, which I think we were on vacation for the great majority of, so we missed most of them. But I sure am glad we got to see this one. This was a huge highlight and a big highlight of the pre-code era as well. Two sisters moved to the big city, very different girls, in search of work and romance. And... The plot is basically how that spins off into some wacky comedy, some slightly heavy melodrama. Mm -hmm. Some deeper social issues of the time. But the thing I liked the best about it was how clear-eyed it was about all the potential pitfalls that a girl just trying to make her way in the world could potentially run into. And I don't know about you, but when the film first started, I wasn't sure I was going to like it. But it only took a few minutes, really, and I really warmed up to this. It goes off like a rocket after that point. And I warmed to the characters, and I think that Dorothy Arzner's direction really begins to to shine 
And once I settled into the movie, I started to notice all of those touches that she put in that I don't think you would have seen from a lot of other directors. No, I don't think so either. And one of the great things about this film, and I gather after reading some from all of her films in particular, is the way she deals with women's relationships, which you didn't see handled this way in a lot of films from that era, or even since then necessarily. She sort of broke the standard mold relative to how most filmmakers treated any group of women put together in a single setting, be it a boarding house or a workplace. You didn't see her handle it the same way. And when you mention relationships, we've got all different sorts of permutations of relationships. Romantic relationships, sibling relationship, mentor relationship. There's an element of lesbianism in it. Earthly pleasures abound in this film. Yeah, Unfortunately, it was a flop when it was released. Paramount did not promote it, which is a real shame because I think it stands up against any of those pre-code films from that era that really stand out. I'm thinking uh, Babyface, for instance, with Mm -hmm. Barbara Stanwyck. I think it's right up there with some of those better films from the pre-code era. Well, I don't know if you knew this, but Dorothy Arzner, uh, her body of work remains to this day the largest by a woman director within the studio system. I did not know that for sure, but it doesn't surprise me. And a a couple of other things that struck me. Number one, I mentioned Paul Lucas has always been one of my favorites. He has played everybody from the villain in The Lady Vanishes to the brave, sympathetic character in Watch on the Rhine to another movie we saw this year, Deadline at Dawn, Mm -hmm. where he's a taxi driver with a big secret. He's so talented. I love to watch him on screen. And going back again a second to the romance, even though there are some of the more kind of hackneyed elements of that that you might see during this period, I really enjoyed that we weren't lied to about what some people's lives might have been. There wasn't this whole sense that came later of the separate twin beds and the chaste kisses on the doorstep. Um, There's some real stuff that happens. No, it was great in that it was frank about how people navigate sexual politics. That was probably my favorite thing about it. So Working Girls is on both of our lists. Right. So how about one from your list? This is the very first film I saw this year, January 1st, 2015. And it was a great way to kick off the year for me. My first choice, that's not a shared choice, is Cousin Jules, made in 1972 by Dominique Benichetti. It's a documentary that profiles Jules and Felicie Guiteau, an octogenarian husband and wife that live in rural Burgundy. He is a blacksmith and she tends to the farmstead. And what I loved about this film was the rhythms of it. It makes virtually no concessions to what, even in 1972, was anything approaching modern life. It's virtually wordless as we watch them navigate their day-to-day rituals, much as I assume they have at that point literally for decades. It's a great example of that thing I like so much that cinema is a window into another world. And watching it, it could have taken place in the 1800s, early 1900s. There, There's no sense of time to me when I watch it. No, that's a great element of it. And I also appreciate just how contemplative and meditative it is. Which brings me to how I found it. This film was distributed by Cinema Guild, which is one of my favorite distribution houses and home video outlets of all. Before getting really into cinema... Music was what taught me how small record labels develop an aesthetic and how their rosters reflect that. Record labels like Discord, SST, Merge, all those things that I was listening to as a young punk rock fan that taught you if you like one release by this label, then you might like all the others. And lately, boutique DVD labels have sprung up all over the place that sort of function the same way. Criterion is a big, big example, probably the most prominent one that everyone who collects DVDs is aware of. Masters of Cinema is the UK equivalent of that. Flickr Alley does a fantastic job with silence and early avant-garde films. Blue Underground, if you really want to get into cult films and Euro sleaze, which I do. (laughs) 
Vinegar Syndrome does a great job restoring exploitation films and films from the early period of American hardcore filmmaking. Arrow functions as sort of a step below Criterion. It's not quite art house in the same way, but they are doing a great job making available tons of releases that aren't quite milestone films, but that every cinephile would want to see. And Cinema Guild is one of my favorite of all of these. If you are a fan of, and I don't say this derisively, I mean this as a compliment, slow cinema. Yes. Things like Ben Rivers and Lab Diaz, then Cinema Guild might be a label that you would really enjoy checking out. They put out a number of my favorite films. Museum Hours, which was one of my favorite films from a couple of years ago. Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. Claire Denis' 35 Shots of Rum. They're movies that give you time to think about them. So if, for instance, a four-hour foreign language adaptation of Crime and Punishment with minimal dialogue sounds like your idea of a good time <laughs> as much as it does to me, For you, then Cinema Guild might be something you really enjoy checking out. And what do you have next? I've got a film that you brought me to. So way back in the old Dark House episode of this podcast, you recommended Waterloo Bridge, the 1931 James Whale version of the film with Mae Clark, Douglas Montgomery, and Doris Lloyd. And then I watched it, and I want to say thank you and no thank you because the <laughs> ending is a real bummer, but it's a, it's a fantastic film. I understand now what you are talking about. There are several beautiful moments that feel like in any other movie they would have been cut out they feel like these natural ad-libs that may clark and douglas montgomery bring to this movie to make it really special to make it feel really real so to remind you of waterloo bridge it is the story of a prostitute self-loathing makes her reluctant to marry an idealistic soldier whom she meets one night during world war one and as I touched on for a second in Working Girls, the same sensation happened during this film, but it was with Douglas Montgomery's performance. At first I thought, oh, this guy's out of place in this thing. And he got better and better and better. And he feels so natural. He's more than a match for Mae Clark in this. And another thing I really, really loved about it is his family, whom they go to meet later on in the film. I think there are not a lot of films, especially during this period, well, really, or any other, that you would see portrayed so warmly. They have such generosity of spirit. We're talking about much different classes mm -hmm. in this film. And this not-quite-so-young woman anymore, I get the feeling she's definitely older than Douglas Montgomery's character. Certainly comes to visit she is not of their class they have really high hopes for him and there's a scene in which the mother has a very honest conversation with her and it's not from a place of what might be in some other film of jealous mean nasty upper class people asserting their privilege privilege it's a mother talking to another woman about something that I think that she understands. Yeah, that was my favorite scene in the whole thing, in fact. And I get the same sense that you do when you watch these characters and their interaction, that this version is the far superior version when you compare it to the sanitized versions that would come in later years that were under the sway of the production code that had these unseemly elements edited out of them. Yeah, we really understand how Mae Clark comes to be in the position that she's in. Mm -hmm. And I like it because these negative expectations you might have for characters are constantly undercut. So I'm going to put it right in there uh, with these other great pre-code discoveries. I will always gravitate towards a well-directed, well-acted, well-written film. So thanks again for introducing me to Waterloo Bridge and that big You're bummer of an welcome. ending. No problem. My pleasure. And how about you? What's next? This is the first one on the list that you haven't seen. Oh, okay. My second choice is Celine and Julie Go Boating from 1974 by Jacques Rivette. This is one, like you mentioned, 
in the beginning that I have been waiting to see for a long, long time. I thought you were going to tell me when you were a four-year-old, you walked right up to the theater, slid your money under the <laughs> thing and said, Selena and Julie go boating for one. I wish. Child. Uh, right. <laughs> Discount. <laughs> I'll get some lemon heads and I'll go watch <laughs> Celine and Julie go boating. No, this is one that I had been waiting to see seemingly for as long as I can remember. It's another one of those sort of milestone international films that all cinephiles have heard of, if not seen, at least. It starts with Julie sitting on a bench in a nondescript Parisian park. And Celine wanders through the scene, dropping a scarf. And Julie attempts to go after her to return it and... We're basically just through the looking glass from that point on. The identity of the two women becomes fluid, and we have these episodes where they are essentially stepping into each other's lives in these gradually expanding concentric circles until we get to the mansion where the latter half of the film takes place. This is where the film begins to loop back in on itself mm. over and over again. So I have no idea what's going on, and... I wouldn't be the only one necessarily. Right. At this point, they engage in a series of adventures, for lack of a better term, where they are exerting control over the direction of the film itself. Oh, wow. It becomes really meta at this point. And with the use of a candy, it's really Alice in Wonderland. This candy transports them into the story that's taking place in the mansion at the same point each time. But each time they go back, they are armed with the knowledge of what happened in their previous trip. So they can direct the outcome of what they reveal to be the mystery that's going on in the household. It's fascinating. Y yes. They exert more and more influence over it each time until they ultimately solve the mystery that they are involved in. Oh, they as do. As characters. Okay. The thing I love about this choice and doing this list, actually, is that it allows us to get into the more extreme ends of our tastes, at least more than we have examined with our first 10 choices so far. The meta aspects of them entering their own story and using what they learn from each previous time to advance and even alter the plot is a really great device. And I choose this one for the list primarily because it's such a great example of how much I love non-traditional narrative structure. It's just really fun to watch unfold. And so if you're a fan of things, for example, like David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, go back and check this one out. Well, I'm so glad that you finally got to watch it because I would have to hear for several more years about the time you tried to go see it <laughs> and the film broke or something and you were so mad and you got mad every single time you told me the story. I did try to go see it once in a theater that wasn't outfitted to screen it properly, and it was a disaster. Oh, big jerks. Yeah. I'm also delighted that we're doing this list because it's showing again and again that French film is the best. Period. End of story. <laughs> there are a lot of French films on my list this time around, which is kind of a surprise to me. But we'll get to that as we go. What do you have for us? Now? Well, I also have a French language film, and it is The Kid with the Bike, though it is from Belgium. And this is 2011's Dardenne Brothers story, starring Thomas Doré and Cécile de France. And it is the story of a young boy in the foster system who chooses a new foster mother and yet wrestles with keeping his former life in the picture all while looking for that missing bike, the mm. key to everything. This I also got to see because you brought me to it, and this was in our collection. And it was really in anticipation of seeing uh, their next feature, which was Two Days, One Night. And so I'd heard of this film. No, I didn't have a very clear picture of what it was about. I hadn't gotten around to it. It wasn't high on my list, but I'm so glad that I watched it this year. And I'm so glad I watched it with Two Days, One Night mm -hmm. as well. Because now I can see what amazing filmmakers they are. It also gives me a window into a world that I haven't seen a lot of work from, which is Belgium. Mm. I haven't seen a lot of Belgian cinema. I was really glad to watch it the same way, with Two Days, One Night. I have more experience with their back catalog than yes. you do. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to see the evolution from something like, say, Rosetta, which is turbulent both in content and style, 
to a more focused and refined type of filmmaking, but that still doesn't sacrifice the emotional vitality by the time you get to something like Two Days, One Night. Well, speaking of emotional vitality, this was a gut-wrenching film for me. Every single moment feels like the moment in which something catastrophic is going to happen to the boy, to Tomas, who is playing Cyril in this movie. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't. And it's so fantastic. Terrible things happen. And I watch this character who is unlike anyone that I could really put to mind as I was writing about this and making my notes that prizes loyalty mm -hmm. above all things, above self-preservation, right. self-interest, understanding consequences of his actions. And yet he accepts every consequence as it comes. True. It's a very mature performance for anyone, much less a kid that age. A young boy, and especially against a pro like Cécile de France. Mm -hmm. I also really enjoyed that there's no big backstory, especially for Samantha, Cécile de France's character, in terms of why she's a foster mother. So the filmmakers meet each character where they are in their lives, and we go from there. And I really like finding these worlds for which I have no reference, and discovering these new characters that you don't see on film very often. So I already established that French language filmmaking is the absolute best in the world. So your next choice, does it happen to be French or are you going to break that mold? It happens to be French. Yes. To be precise, Franco-Italian. But it is a French language film. I am going to take a page out of your book and steal one off of your list. Oh, co-list. And talk about Max and the Junkman. Wonderful. 1971 crime film by Claude Sauté. It stars Michelle Piccoli and Romy Schneider. Piccoli is a single-minded police inspector, the titular Max, who runs into an old army buddy that has ended up a small-time hood that is completely unaware of the fact that Max is on the right side of the law and begins to tell him about all of his illegal activities. Max subtly encourages this group to pull off a big heist so that he can nab them red-handed. And Romy Schneider is the prostitute and sort of de facto queen of the gang that he manipulates into feeding the gang information that guides them to take the path that he wants them to take. He has approval of the top brass on this project, but he keeps it under his hat just exactly how personally involved he has become in directing the outcome of the case and interacting directly with the major players. And the thing I like most about it is Piccoli's performance. He is so inscrutable. When you look into his eyes, you are never sure what angles he's playing. Is he obsessed with having just come off a failed case? Is he too close to Lily, Romy Schneider's character? Is he an aloof sociopath? Could be I'm all Not of those. sure. I spent the whole thing trying to read his face for clues yeah. and was foiled at every turn. He has almost sort of shark eyes mm. in this. They're so dark. Not a lot of light shines out of them. And when we saw this, again with Austin Film Society, as part of a larger French crime series, I went into it kind of thinking it was going to be, and especially for the time period, a little bit more of that swinging European kind of bouncy caper. Mm -hmm. And it is like the burglars. not like the burglars. And it is not. No, this was the standout of the series for me. I liked the burglars. I did too. But this was far and away the much heavier film, much more gravity to this one. And it's all because of Piccoli, basically. I think my jaw dropped at the end. Oh, yeah. I, I was stunned. I was stunned. It is a fantastic and confounding character study. And if you see this or are just curious about Michelle Piccoli's other work, I would recommend you start with Contempt, which is fantastic, or a couple of films he made with Marco Ferreri, Dillinger is Dead, or La Grande Bouffe. He's had decades, 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 decades long career, so you've got a lot of wonderful things to choose from. And Romy Schneider, on her own, is fantastic. Okay, what do you have for us next? Well, I'm going to break the mold this time. No French. But okay. though it is a little bit closer to my other stomping grounds, which is the South, and I've got Wise Blood from Ooh. 1979, directed by John Huston from the Flannery O'Connor source novel. 
and starring Brad Dorif, John Huston as well, Dan Shore, Harry Dean Stanton, and Amy Wright. And this film is about Hazel Motes, our southerner, young, poor, ambitious, uneducated, and astute is the word that you use to describe him, which I heartily agree with, who determines to become something in the world. He's going to do something and everybody's going to watch. And he decides that the best way to do this is to become a street preacher. And I liked this movie so much. As I mentioned, I can relate to it. And this is territory that I'm very familiar with. The street preaching, the handmade leaflets. I've read a few of those in my day. And really what stands out is Brad Dourif's performance, Mm -hmm. number one. But there are a couple of other performances that I loved as well. Harry Dean Stanton. We don't need to say how great he is. We all know that. But Amy Wright in mm-hmm. this is the person who really stood out for me. And I've been a fan of hers in really small roles that she's had, specifically Crossing Delancey and The Accidental Tourist. Mm-hmm. So I was aware of her when I was a young person and always loved to see her pop up in things. And she is great yeah, in this. Is. And this is another film, much like you would expect from Flannery O'Connor writing the novel, that The twists and turns are quite unexpected, though very real to the characters. I didn't know what was going to happen, and yet I wasn't surprised. And the production design really stands out. The house, the apartment, the cars especially. Mm -hmm. And I'll say it again, that old-time religion is deeply ingrained in me from where I'm from. And I once had a dream about snake handlers. Just a dream? Just a dream. Never I actually, did write a story about it afterwards. You've never actually I've never seen ha- them? I've never seen it, and I've never handled a snake. It's something but to I, see. I dreamt. Oh. I've never actually handled one, but I have been at services where those sorts of things have gone on. Wow. And it is bananas. Yeah. Flannery O'Connor and her old-time religion, like you put it, is one of my favorite American novelists and storytellers. And this movie gets as much of that as you can get into a film adaptation. Obviously, with her novels and short stories, there's so much more in the books themselves. But this is a great literary adaptation. It's one of my favorites, too. I stumbled upon this like I did a lot of things. Like I did Gregory's Girl, for instance, our last episode, on cable in the afternoon ah. after school one day mm-hmm. and was floored by it. And it has not lost any of that power in the ensuing 20 years since I saw it the first time. But yeah, it's fantastic. And now I'm going to turn it back to you. Well, my next choice is the most contemporary films of all my list. 1972. All the way up to 1986. All right. I'm actually cracking the 80s for once. (laughs) And it is Richard Pryor's Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling, which he also co-wrote and produced and starred in. I didn't realize that. His first feature film that he directed, and only feature film he directed for that matter, he has a co-directing credit on one of his concert films, but this is his actual auteur work. Wow. It's an autobiographical. He said semi-autobiographical at the time, but this is... You think 100%? I think so. In retrospect, with 30 years of hindsight, all of these stories are his stories. It picks up in the aftermath of his freebasing accident, where he was seriously burned and hospitalized for a long time. And from that point, in flashback, it visits pivotal points throughout his life and his career, Growing up in a brothel in Illinois, his first fledgling steps as an untested comic as a young man, his success and subsequent self-destruction, which culminates in what turns out to be a suicide attempt. It's revealed in the film that that quote-unquote accident was actually him trying to kill himself. I put this movie on this list for two reasons. One, I have never seen an artist be so completely honest about themselves and pay such a price to tell it, too. It wasn't just that. It was a vanity project. He cashed in a lot of goodwill and clout that he had at the time that he would never be able to capitalize on again after this film was made. It was pretty poorly received. A lot of mixed reviews. That's what I recall. Mm -hmm. And so I never was anxious to seek it out, even though I'm a huge Richard Pryor fan. And Richard Linklater showed this this year as part of his Jewels in the Wasteland series at Austin Film Society. And I was just floored. And I was so sorry that I hadn't seen it before now, because I love Richard Pryor so much. Two, 
The second reason it's on the list is that I think he never got his due as an actor. Ever. He was one of the best that I have ever seen when given the opportunity. They just didn't give him the chance very much. The word soulful comes to mind when I think about him. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, I think he is able to lay bare Oh, without a doubt. Well, you see that that's the roots of his comedy. That's the roots of his stand-up, too, which is, I think, why he was so successful and the best that's ever done that. He was always doing so much more than just being funny. And the scene, for instance, in this, where he has it out with his father about wanting to be a comic, where he exhibits such pain and vulnerability as a young man, he plays himself at all different stages of life, but as the adult Richard Pryor. Mm -hmm. You're immediately taken back to those times because his performance is so flawless in those moments. The film itself is not perfect, Mm -hmm. but just to see him latch on to these opportunities to show what he can do makes it worth seeing. When he douses himself with alcohol in the suicide attempt, his misery and his inability to avert his own self-destruction is palpable. The guy could simply act. If you've never seen Blue Collar, I highly recommend checking that out. Paul Schrader film. He's great in that. Or the Juke and Opal sketch from the Lily Tomlin show from CBS in 1973. It's wonderful. It's poetry. Yeah. I will put his performance in that 10 minutes up against anyone's anywhere ever. He exhibits more in that 10 minutes than almost anyone I've ever seen. High praise. So go watch Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling, and be as pleasantly surprised as I was, especially if you're a Richard Pryor fan. Are you going to steal another one of my choices this time, or are you going to give us something else? I'm going to give you something else. Now, I will often say, when I don't know what I want to watch, surprise me, here's the mood I'm in, and you will disappear for a few minutes, or many minutes, and seek out some choices for me, and then present them. And I don't know what mood I said I was in when you brought me House (laughs) from 1977. So not the house with William Catt. The Japanese film directed Haosu or Haosa, however they pronounce it. I'm so sorry, I'm butchering it. But directed by Nobuhiko Obayashi. I'm not going to give you the list of actresses because I would simply butcher it and I would just have to apologize for it. But this is straight up bananas, cuckoo crazy. I can't think of anything (laughs) else I've ever seen like it. I was trying to liken it in my head to. The Banana Splits meets The Monkeys meets The Shining meets I Don't Know What meets Abbott Costello and meets Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. It's insane. It is. And it is so much fun. That it is, too. The simple outline is that seven schoolgirls start out on their summer trip. This is a lot of alliteration. Sorry. To meet the aunt of one of the schoolgirls. And the aunt, we find out, is going to kill them all. <laughs> My absolute favorite character is Kung Fu. She's, She's the, best. the best. I was so pissed when she got killed. I'm not spoiling anything. You know what's going to happen. Right. And if I mentioned before that it's cuckoo crazy, it's cuckoo crazy. I'll say it again. It is nuts. It's total nuts. You've got to see it to believe it. I'm just going to, I don't know what else to say. I'm just going to leave it at that. That's probably for the best. There's nothing you can do to prepare someone. No. For how. I had no idea insane it is the cover art might give you an inkling of an idea Mm. and then two seconds in i think i looked at you with my eyes like big saucers (laughs) and my mouth hanging open it's wonderful it's crazy it's wonderful check it out that is a perfect opportunity for me to talk about my next pick which is also about schoolgirls. tell me more alucarda from 1977 by juan lopez moctezuma ostensibly a riff on the old, old vampire tale Camilla, but not really. It is about Alucarda, played by Tina Romero, who is an orphan in a Catholic orphanage in Mexico around the turn of the century. Turn of the 19th century. Right. Yes, not the year 1999-2000. Justine, another orphan, arrives... And their relationship intensifies, culminating in them releasing this malevolent force, becoming possessed, and bringing ruin and madness upon the convent. It is full-blown hysteria. 
and it has all the hallmarks of that era's Euro sleaze, corrupt nuns, the nudity, the blood, the possession. The nudity. The nudity and the nudity. The more the nudity. But ultimately, even with all that, it doesn't register like one of those. To me, this feels more like it belongs under a huge umbrella with Picnic at Hanging Rock, Suspiria, and Heavenly Creatures. I was just thinking Heavenly Creatures, yes. There's much more to it. It's much more substantial than your typical grindhouse nunsploitation films. And as we watch this, I said this many times, and, and I'm still kind of obsessed by it, which is I think this would make a great play. And if anyone listening wants to collaborate on it with me, <laughs> I'm ready. The way I found this, to encourage other people to do the same thing, frequently I will comb through lists of obscure underseen, underrated international horror films, and this one turned up again and again and again. And it's also on a great label, Mondo Macabro, which, if you like this sort of thing, much like if you like the quiet films, go to Cinema Guild. If you like trash that somehow elevates itself above that, look for Mondo Macabro, because that label puts out some of the most fascinating films from all around the world that are just this crazy. I'm going to bring the list back to the realm of earthly beauties that are not 15-year-old girls, which is from our shared list, and it is the Opu Trilogy, which we have mentioned several times in the course of our podcast. And I'm talking about the three films from 1955, 56, and 59, directed by Satyajit Rai, whom we profiled in our Mahanagar episode. Mm -hmm. This is yet another of those films that I have been chasing for years. It existed in a far less luminous version than it does now, since it's been restored recently by Criterion. And the DVDs were out of print and extremely expensive, and the negative for this film had burned in a fire, and it was thought potentially lost forever. And so it was really hard to come by for a long, long time. Finally, Janice and Criterion restored it and toured prints of the film, and Austin Film Society brought it in this year, and I was just thunderstruck by it. It's a revelation. It's a masterpiece. I can't think of another word to describe the enormity of this. The films in the trilogy are Pather Panchali, Aparajito, and Apur Sensur, and you're right, it is a milestone and deservedly so. It deserves every accolade I've ever read, ever heard it given. It follows the course of Opu's life starting as a young boy in the Bengali countryside, moving from there to pursue his education as a young man in Calcutta, in the big city, and then finally as a grown man and rather reluctant father, essentially meeting a young version of himself bringing the entire thing full circle. And I think the beauty of it is that each of the films have something that's going to speak to you. And that might change depending on the day, depending on the mood that you're in, depending on the stage of life that you might find yourself. Right. For example, I really love the first right. the most, and I know that you really love the second. Right. We mentioned this before in the previous episode we did about Mahamagar briefly, and we won't go into it in great detail here because I think we will do future episodes about each one of these. We love them so much. But you're right. Aparajito speaks more to me because I am more enamored of watching him grow and become his own person and pursue his education. That part of it to me was the most interesting angle of the whole story. And I really love the exploration of childhood and the pleasures that come in the new discoveries of the world around you. Mm -hmm. I come back to the third, and the beauty of the first love really speaks to me mm -hmm. as well, and the beauty of marriage. It's on the list for me because it is literally the most important thing I saw this year, I would say. I would classify it as such, both in terms of its stature in the film community and all the things that it taught me regarding being a human being. And Criterion has released it in a fantastic box set now, so everybody can go and check it out, which I say, run, don't walk. So is your next choice going to be Walk, Don't Run, starring uh, Cary Grant? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. I thought maybe that was your clever segue. No. My next choice is about as far from that 
<laughs> as you can possibly get. Hit me. Because my next choice is The Devils by Ken Russell from 1971. The Alamo Drafthouse did a fantastic series of British folk horror films this year. And this was, along with The Blood on Satan's Claw, the highlight for me. I choose this one over that one, probably based on just how much of a powerhouse Oliver Reed is. Definitely. And how outrageous and blasphemous it is in general. And he and Ken Russell together seem like that would be a a marriage made in heaven. A marriage made in hell. (laughs) Good one. (laughs) Oliver Reed plays a worldly, that's putting it mildly, Uh, priest. Yeah. Who has become the de facto guardian of this small city. A city, coincidentally, that Cardinal Richelieu once demolished. And is trying to convince Louis XIII to do. Vanessa Redgrave is a... Worldly. Worldly, again, is... You could classify it as such. She is a hunchbacked nun uh-huh. who is sexually obsessed with Oliver Reed's character. I buy it. Unbeknownst to him. Mm. From the setup, it sounds like it's a lighthearted musical. <laughs> there are showstopper set pieces, <laughs> you could say. Vanessa Redgrave's character is driven over the edge when she discovers that Reed has secretly married another another woman and she cries witch essentially driving the other nuns into an orgiastic frenzy and accusing reed of being the root of the devilry reminds me of the crucible a little bit sounds like but no no. (laughs) right i was aware of the reputation that this film had for a long long time again another one that i've been chasing for what seems like forever and what drew me in essentially was the blasphemous outrageousness of the whole production. And that would have been enough. But as it turns out, it's a really effective portrait of political maneuvering, scapegoating, and one man's defiance in the face of a complete miscarriage of justice. The exploration of those themes are ultimately much more satisfying than the sideshow of the naked, writhing nuns and the insane exorcist inquisitors, though that part doesn't hurt. (laughs) I think I'll have to watch it to be able to decide if I think the insane orgiastic uh, nudity is the only level on which I need to watch it. You will be pleasantly surprised in every regard. Well, I'm going to bring us back down to Earth again, except I'm not, because I'm doing The Creature with the Atom Brain from 1955, directed by Edward L. Kahn, who directed over 120 features, including one of my favorites, The She-Creature. Sleep! So... One of my favorites, <laughs> written by uh, Kurt Siodmak, who was also the brother of Robert Siodmak, who we know has done many, many, many right. wonderful things. And I'll touch upon that in just a second. Okay. Now, this movie is a favorite for me simply because I love, as we mentioned in the Thing from Another World, to discover new Atomic Age films right. when I can. And so this was a discovery for me. And it made such a big impression because the score is terrific. It's really creepy. And I especially love that the ex-Nazi scientist reanimates the corpses of people who then go on to kill off their buddies, all in the pay of a gangster. So this is definitely science is the strange bedfellow to murder and crime. Mm. And fun fact, it served on the bottom half of the double bill with It Came From Beneath the Sea, also one of my favorites. The way I found this years ago was via Rocky Erickson. The song. Yeah. Rocky, when he was going through difficult times... Yes, sadly. ...found a lot of solace in these bizarro Atomic Age sci-fi and horror movies, and he wrote quite a few songs about them. But this one was always, always my favorite of all of his. And living and working in Austin for so many years and working at Waterloo Records, I got to know him. And we would run into each other on a pretty regular basis. And we got to talk about all of these things. And having that background with it makes this movie just that much more special and fun. 
Well, I'm so glad you introduced it to me. And I want to speak for just a second again about Kurt Siodmak, who wrote novels and plays and poetry and screenplays, including more of my favorites like The Wolfman. He wrote Donovan's Brain. He wrote the novel of that. And there's also a great suspense episode with Orson Welles in Donovan's Brain. And he wrote The Beast with Five Fingers, which Mm. is very fun. And lastly, I keep saying he's written a lot of my favorites. This is my favorite, 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 which is I Walked With a Zombie. (laughs) He wrote that. I love I Walked With a Zombie. Check it out. It's wonderful. And so is The Creature with the Atom Rain. Well, my next choice, again, is 180 degrees from your choice, because my next choice is The Mother and the Whore from 1973 by Jean Ustache which I also got to see at Austin Film Society, and you unfortunately didn't get to go for this one, which is a shame because I think you would have really enjoyed it. Because, again, French film is the best. Right. We know that. It's the story of a love triangle between young Parisians in the summer of 1972, and the points on that triangle are Jean-Pierre Léo, which you would probably know from 400 Blows, among other things, many, many other things, He's pretentious and unemployed. Bernadette Lafont, his sometimes living girlfriend, and Francoise Lebrun, who is a nurse he picks up when his status with Lafont is sort of on unstable ground. At 219 minutes, it's pretty demanding, but I really loved it. I chose it for this list because I am so often disappointed in how American films treat sex and sexuality. For the most part, complete garbage. And so it's always refreshing to find a film from whatever time period that actually treats you like an adult in discussing any of these things. It's definitely not a love story. It is strictly about sex, it feels like. I don't mean to imply that it's explicit or portrays any sort of graphic sexual activity, but it is explicitly honest, which is my favorite thing about it appetites and selfishness and the jockeying for position that people do when their needs are not being met. All of that stuff, it's incredibly turbulent emotionally, even though it seems to be placid on the surface because it's almost four hours of people just talking. But it's not just four hours of people just talking. At times, it's really emotionally violent. And it was probably the most challenging thing I saw all year. And it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't seen it, that though it is long, you would not put this in the slow cinema category. No, it is not like Lab Diaz or Ben Rivers or any filmmakers that I mentioned before like that. It is much more a traditional narrative structure. It is only experimental in the sense that it is actually that long and takes that much time to examine the subject. Well, I think we've discussed a few titles today, actually, American and world cinema that treat love relationships, sex, and sexuality in more interesting, honest, crazy ways than banal ways. So we've got some good titles on the list. We do. And my final choice will put a bow on that for you. Uh Uh-oh. Should we do that first? No. What's your next one? My next choice is... Killing of a Chinese Bookie from Mm. 1976, directed by John Cassavetes. Now, before I get into this, this was my first Cassavetes film. And if you haven't listened to... How do you get to be this old and not... That's true. How are you my wife for this long and not have seen... Okay, okay, okay. Who else was watching obscure French cleric movies from the 40s (laughs) that nobody's ever heard of? Okay, so leave me alone. But this was my first <laughs> Cassavetes film. And for us, that's a very big deal because he is top of your list. Yes, absolutely. My yeah. favorite. My one that I would leave everything else behind for. Now, why did you choose this film as my first introduction? Because it's not first in chronology for his work. No. So why was this your first choice for me to get introduced? Because Woman Under the Influence, which is my favorite, is just too much to try to take on first thing i feel like we will do episodes about these things most definitely woman under the influence but i assume we will do a full episode about killing of a chinese bookie as well because i love them so much i chose it for the first one to introduce you to because 
there are so many elements of it that I thought you could relate to without it being an emotional massacre. Right. Me relating to the story that he's the proud strip club owner <laughs> with the gambling addiction and on the run from the mafia, I can definitely relate to that. I mean that more in the sense of there are certain Altman-esque techniques that you were probably already familiar with. And Ben Gazzara, being a favorite of both of ours, probably made this an easy introduction. Not that it's an easy film. It, it's definitely not an easy film. It's a complex film for complex people. And though, you know, as I say that, I'm not that complex. I'm, you know, cake and naps and I'm good to go. But... I think you're selling yourself a little Okay, short. thank you. I was surprised at how accessible this was because without going into our day-to-day -day life in too much detail, you've been talking to me about the work of Cassavetes, whom I was no stranger to. I'd, I've heard about him since I, as far as I can remember. I've seen him as an actor. I know his work as a director, but I had purposefully stayed away because I did think it was going to be maybe too much for me. I think I was a little bit wary, and this was a great choice. So I applaud you for that choice. And we had mentioned before Ben Gazzara. He is the main character. He is Cosmo, the aforementioned strip club owner, who gets in deep to the mafia yeah. mm -hmm. with his gambling debts. All because he wants to make his club a success. He so believes in this dream as his business owner and taking care of his girls and taking care of his employees and having a life that he has dreamed of that he will do anything, including make really terrible gambling choices, to get to that dream. And it's such a dingy and squalid little kingdom. It is. It is. And he's out front trying to do the valley parking too and get people through the door. And I think there's so much to love with Cosmo. And you see his tiny little world, and then that understanding of this larger, much more cruel and terrible world that he becomes a part of, mm -hmm. that he is unmatched for, but yet is he? And I, there are a lot of interesting questions in this that I really enjoyed exploring. One of my favorite stories about this movie is when they were filming the eponymous actual killing of the Chinese bookie in his home... Ben Gazzara's character, Cosmo, is sent to do a hit. Yes. To even the score for the money he owes. And Cassavetti so abhorred violence, physical violence, that they shut down production for a while and went to dinner, the big family dinner that they would usually have when they were working together. His crew much more like a family than a crew. And he sat there with Al Rubin trying to talk himself out of killing this character. Is there any way that we can get away with not killing the character to, and they finally had to tell him John the name of the movie is <laughs> the killing, killing of a, a Chinese, Chinese bookie. bookie and he was so mad that he had written himself into a corner that he had to do this now that it upset him so terribly that he had to now go through with dispatching this poor somewhat innocent at least as it appears to us in the film this character he just hated that he had to do that well, and the innocent of who Cosmo is, mm. too. And I think I was set to sort of endure this movie. Mm. And I don't want to write myself in the corner of being the lowest common denominator that can't handle something heavy mm. or long or any of those. Right. Because I can and I do love those things. But this movie goes like stink. What? Is that not a phrase that you're familiar with? No. What is... Okay. Go ahead it's and... fast. Stink is fast. Stink is fast. <laughs> Look it up. Is this a Virginia expression? Maybe. Yeah, I guess maybe. I don't think I just made it up. Okay. Though that's possible. That's the first time I've ever heard that phrase. To wrap up, killing of a Chinese bookie goes like stink. Okay, great. I believe we have come to the end of both of our lists. Is that correct? You've got we one have, more? I have one to go. And it is Belladonna of Sadness from 1973 by Eiichi Yamamoto. I saw this at Fantastic Fest this year among dozens of other movies. You're welcome. You are. Because I got you the badge. You're the greatest wife in the world. Thank you. It is a Japanese animated film. And I know what a lot of people are thinking when I say that, but... Me included. But forget yeah, that. Because I have very limited experience with Japanimation, I guess. 
it is a hallucinatory epic. It is as if brilliant, erotically charged watercolors exploded into life as a fairy tale rendition of Joan of Arc's story. There's a lot of similarity to your choices, I'm having to say, and it comes down to eroticism. <laughs> well, and there's nothing wrong with it's that. It's a favorite theme that doesn't get dealt with very well very often. And so I would like to take the opportunity to highlight some of those, you big prude. <laughs> I've got this handwritten leaflet that I'd like to share with you. Anyway, the story is that a peasant woman is raped by a local lord, a noble, and she gradually situates herself to exact her revenge, working herself into a position of considerable political power in the village. She's accused of witchcraft, another recurring theme here, and is driven out of the village, and since she's being punished for it anyway, decides to go all in and makes a pact with the devil, using her new powers to instigate a rebellion... Which culminates in her being burned at the stake. And this is animated? Yes, but not in the traditional sense. I've seen little bit, very bits of it. Very small bits of it. A lot of it is static watercolor images that the camera pans across. Wow. And strategically zooms on parts of the panel that are relevant to the story. It's not like anything I've ever seen. It is astounding. It's easily, since we, you mentioned... The recurring theme. It's easily the most vivid and visually stunning exploration of these themes of persecution and sexual liberation that I may have ever seen. And those, these themes that you find rumbling as an undercurrent through witch stories for centuries now. The version I got to see at Fantastic Fest was a restored version that was simply revelatory. They showed some side-by-side -side comparisons. So you really see that it got the restoration that it deserved. Cinelicious is the company that is releasing it on Blu-ray in the U.S. soon, and I cannot wait to have a copy to show to you. I kind of wish Cinelicious was the name of our podcast now. <laughs> Haven't heard that. Too late. That'll just be the name of our girl group that comes out of the podcast. <laughs> okay. That does nothing but on the town medleys? <laughs> it's a hell of a town. I don't think they say hell of a though. Sorry. <laughs> That is my final choice. Okay. What is yours? My final choice comes back to the undisputed truth that we have established, which is that French film is the best. So I'm ending with A Day in the Country from 1936, directed by Jean Renoir from the Guy de Maupassant story. And it stars Sylvia Bataille, Jane Markin, and Georges Darnot. It is a story of the family of a Parisian shop owner who decide to spend a day in the country, the titular day in the country. And the daughter falls in love with a man who works at the inn that they arrive at where they spend this day. And it is a short film, so it's a little bit of a departure as well from everything right. else on our Just show. over 40 minutes. Yes. Now, this is the time when you might want to cue the piano music to underscore what I'm about to say, because okay. this is going to be a little bit of I'll a dreamy, floaty flight of fancy. I have to step back for a second and explain why I keep hammering on and on about French film. France, the idea of France, the French language, French culture, has been a part of my life for a very long time. And I don't have a very clear explanation as to why that is. You know, I grew up in Virginia. We moved to Idaho when I was a young person. I had romantic dreams from childhood, probably from being exposed to all of this cinema mm -hmm. that maybe some other people weren't. And I decided at a very young age that I wanted to learn languages so that I could go anywhere and speak to anyone. Right. And French was the thing that came first. And that's what I your degree is in. That's right? what my degree is in. I started speaking it when I was in eighth grade. That's the first opportunity I had to take classes in it, and that was wonderful. And so I've been doing it ever since then. And to find something so many years removed from that, after traveling there and spending time there, finding something now that can come to me like a thunderclap, as it were, to make such a difference in my life is pretty fantastic. And this sort of slip of a film... From a director whom I've seen many other works from, mm. who's Again, worldwide Miles, Miles famous, Stones, yeah. 
from a writer that I've read many, many, many stories from, both before and since this work. This is truly a discovery that I can find something that touches me so deeply as this film did. And I came to it, again, a little bit of a long story. We host a movie night regularly, Mm -hmm. and we alternate choices just like we do with this podcast. And so when I was looking to program my birthday month, which is September, I'm also obsessed with water. That's another thing that I will always explore and watch and learn about. And I was looking to program shorts because I find them to be really fun and not what a lot of people get to see in regular life. And I was looking at lists of short films about rivers, and this film came up, and that's how we found it. And you got it for me. Thank you very much. And we watched it, and I felt as if I was back in that dream that I had when I was a young person of what I imagined the French countryside was like. And this takes us right there. That is a fantastic note to end on. At this point, I would like to recap our lists. And we had three shared titles that were on each of ours, which were Max and the Junkmen, Working Girls, and the Opu Trilogy. And then you had seven others, which were... I had Waterloo Bridge, The Kid with the Bike, Wise Blood, House, Creature with the Atom Brain, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, and A Day in the Country. And my remaining seven were Cousin Jules, Selena Julie Go Boating, Jojo Dancer Your Life is Calling, Alucarda, The Devils, The Mother and the Whore, and Belladonna of Sadness. This is the point in the show where we would typically do recommendations for further viewing, but since this whole show basically has functioned as recommendations for further viewing, I thought we could take a second and talk about what we look forward to most in 2016. Are there releases or events or things that you are anticipating greatly? I've got a few of those. And my first is Green Room, which you Mm. got to see at Fantastic Fest. And that's the next uh, Jeremy Saulnier feature. That's on my list too, for sure. Wonderful. He did Blue Ruin, which we loved. Can't wait to do a show about. So can't wait to be able to see this with all the rest of us plebs who didn't get to go (laughs) to the Fantastic Fest uh, next year. I've also got a very exciting collection that's going to be released, which is John Huston's war documentaries, one of which I've shown you, Let There Be Light, and two others I saw on my own years ago. So I I'm, I'm, can't wait to see all of those put together. I really look forward to that because this was one of your selections for our movie nights that you programmed that I had never seen before. And Let There Be Light is just flabbergasting. I cannot wait to see that again and those other two titles. I'm also hoping that 2016 is the year in which titles that are not available might become available, one of which is Comfort and Joy, which you teased during Gregory's Girl, and we can't watch. So hopefully it might get a release. And along with that is Even the Wind is Afraid, which you've been telling me about for years, which is a Mexican horror film. I cannot wait for the day that that becomes available on home video my wish list for home video betrayal from 1983 the adaptation of the harold pinter play with ben kingsley and jeremy irons and patricia hodge i love that movie and i've been waiting and waiting and waiting and i don't know that there will ever be enough of a demand for it to see a home video release maybe on one of those archive services that they print on demand I was hoping that now that That'd be great. as that grows, that becomes one of those titles. That's the thing that's on my wish list has been forever. And the last thing I'm really excited about is a film that we already own that I just haven't watched yet, <laughs> which is La Danse. It's the Frederick uh, Weissman portrait of the uh, Paris Ballet. And so I can't wait to watch it. We just saw it in Jackson Heights and can't wait. Well, for me, the things that I am most looking forward to, at least in the very early part of the year, Austin Film Society is doing a Vim Benders retrospective in which they are screening eight of his films, including the big ones that everyone knows, Wings of Desire, Paris, Texas. The ones that I cannot wait to see, though, that I have been, again, reading about and waiting to see forever, two in particular, Kings of the Road 
and Alice in the Cities. I am so excited to get to see Alice in the Cities on the big screen for the first time that I just can't take it almost. I've been waiting forever and putting it off and putting it off because it's been streaming on Hulu, but I've been hoping for something like this, and lo and behold, Lars Nielsen and Holly Herrick and all the other people at Austin Film Society have answered my prayers, so I cannot wait. I gave them your diary, they read (laughs) it closely, and they're doing it for you. Other things that I am really looking forward to... Criterion is releasing Edward Yang's A Brighter Summer Day, finally, on DVD in March. That's going to be a great release. Out One by Jacques Rivette, a 12-hour sprawling... (laughs) Again, it's this sort of thing... I don't think you had to say sprawling, probably. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) It gets a home video release in January, and as much as I love Celine and Julie Go Boating, I cannot wait to try to take on something that's even more challenging than that. In addition to Green Room, the other thing I saw at Fantastic Fest that will be getting a theatrical release is Evolution in February, I want to say. I knew it blew you away. My film of the year for 2015. I cannot wait to take you to see that. I recommend everyone go see it. And the last thing on my list of things I'm looking forward to, this is finally the year, I guarantee, whatever I have to do, that we get a multi-region Blu-ray player. So I can even, even further expand my obsessive DVD collection to include titles from all around the globe rather than just what's available in Region 1. Let's do it. And that brings us to the end of our very first special episode, Ants in Your Pants of 2015. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast and that will get you there. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. We have a website that is magiclanternpodcast.com and you can get all of our episodes including supplemental material there. And we are on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. I'd like to say a special thanks to everyone since the last episode who has posted on Facebook about the show, told their listeners, or tweeted about the show. Cheryl Jones, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Grindhouse Dave had some great things to say about our Rebecca episode. Craig Eastman, thanks again, as always. Jeff Duncanson, another person who routinely reaches out to us. We certainly appreciate that interaction all the time. And Real Scotland retweeted our Gregory's Girl link which resulted in Francis McDonald of Teenage Fan Club stumbling across the show and enjoying it, which is a big deal for me because I played a Catholic education and bandwagon-esque into the ground when those records came out, and being a drummer, played those specific parts over and over and over again. It was a special day for you. It was a big to deal. Get that. that was kind of exciting. And last but not least... Thanks to Doc Kennedy for tweeting about the show and leaving us a really nice review on iTunes. If you would like to do that, it's very easy. One click subscribes you to the show, and only a couple of clicks you can leave a review and rating for us. Anytime you take the trouble and energy to do that, we certainly appreciate it. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.